What a joy to be able to share together and um, connect and know that even if you've just met somebody for the first time, if in brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, there's a bond that is so real and uh, so encouraging. Um, it's one of the reasons I love that, that verse by, from the Apostle Paul, sharing that mutual love and encouragement. I want to break in here with a brief um, announcement, just an update uh, to be sure that everybody's aware uh, what we've shared a couple of times in email, but could have missed it. Um, starting two weeks from now, we're going to do a little bit different uh, flow of events on, mon- on the first Sunday of every month. So next Sunday is the fifth Sunday of April, regular Cafe Liberty, regular worship time. Then on May 7th, two weeks from today, on May 7th, we'll start uh, for probably four months in a row having first Sunday, no Cafe Liberty prior to service, but a refreshments reception right after our morning service. So we've enjoyed so much the opportunity to stay a little bit longer, fellowship 15, 20 minutes after service, and we're going to turn that into a reception and refreshments time on May the 7th. So just be aware of that, and we love to welcome guests and bring friends along, and uh, we look forward to a festive time of connecting and sharing and uh, reaching out. So I'm so grateful for those that serve in each of these areas who've made suggestions and are part of, uh, of helping to just nurture that, uh, that very mutual love and fellowship that, that we're uh, experiencing and talking about here. Well, today I wanted to give you a, share a reading uh, from Scripture that is along with the New Testament uh, story that we're going to be sharing about today. So this first reading, I want to ask us to again share together. We were doing this a lot of times with the kids here, but they need the time there in the class. And I'm going to invite you to take um, the Bibles that are there in the chairs. And uh, this is just a part of our overall passion here at Liberty for the Word of God becoming so vitally anchored and deeply rooted in our souls, and the psalm that I ask you to turn to, page 637, 637 in the Bibles there that are in the chairs, uh, and 32, any that you brought your own Bible, you prefer to uh, use that, that's fine. We're reading together in unison from the New King James, and there are many other translations, of course, in the house. So we're going to read Psalm 32, verses 1 to 7. Now, this is not the message today. I was struck by the fact that, as I pray about a reading that we might share, that this is a wonderful psalmist introduction to the theme that we'll be looking at in the second of the appearances of Jesus after his that we'll be talking about today. And especially, we see in these seven verses of Psalm 32, the deep need in all of our lives for total forgiveness. Would you read aloud with me today on page 637, Psalm 32, verses 1 to 7. Let's read the Word of God together. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I should have said earlier, we will read the Selahs. Let's do it, all right? Come on. Selahs. Positive thinking about it. Amen? Verses 6 and 7. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selahs. Amen. Amen. Well, this is part of, uh, part of the goal of our shared journey is that God's word comes to us to not only comfort and strengthen and open our eyes, but it is a nurturing of our souls. And of course, we know we always need that nurturing of the soul in many different ways, but Psalm 32 is like a laser beam pointing at the glorious gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's described in the book of Romans this very passage of Psalm 32 as the foreshadowing of this great gift of being justified by faith through Jesus Christ alone. But if we ask the question, how does that justification take place? How does that awakening of the heart to God? And we began looking last week at the appearances of the Lord Jesus after his resurrection, and today we come in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John to a particular appearance of the Lord Jesus that brings us face to face with one of the worst issues, most difficult issues that we all face, and that is, what do I do with my hurts? Can we think about that a little bit today? What do I do when I am hurt? How often are we hurt? How deeply are we hurt? And um, Ian, uh, the little iPhone is not bringing that up, and I can use the other, but I thought you could probably, technology will, uh, will always be sweet when it actually works. Thank you. And uh, so as we think about this, this 21st chapter of the Gospel of John brings to us uh, the third appearance of the Lord Jesus to the disciples, but not the third of all the appearances. And for that reason, I want to show you a couple of parallel passages. And if you would have your Bible today, I'd like to invite you to open to John 21. Thank you. Uh, to John 21. And then also find Acts 1, which happens to be just a page over, uh, but also 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, the reason I want to ask you to let your fingers do the walking and the white pages here a bit is that it's important to see that in the risen life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that he has made it so vividly clear 
in these appearances after his resurrection what the priority of the future giving of the gospel would be. And so first I ask you to start at that John 21, and we'll just read that first verse of John chapter 21, and I read this from the New American Standard translation now. John 21.1, finding that in your Bible. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Jesus, the scripture says here, Jesus appeared again to the disciples. Now, if you page over just one page, or maybe two, depending on your Bible, to Acts 1, verse 2 and 3, we see why were these appearances so necessary, but, but it also addresses a, a question we naturally have, and that is most of us would love certainly to be in any of the appearances, but we also would love to know what was being said in these appearances. What was being discussed? Can you just imagine this? After the awesome, glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior, where on Easter we talked about the glorified body is literally bringing humanity into the throne room, as we read in 1 Timothy 2, the mediator between God and men is the man Christ Jesus. So even those wounds that he showed the apostles in the upper room were evidence of the eternal power and glory of God in resurrection life, literally glorifying the very body, the actual body of our Lord and Savior. And then we read in Acts 1 verse 2, until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now that verse certainly answers one of our questions. What was the theme? What was the topic? What was of most vital urgency in those 40 days from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus until he bodily ascended into heaven? And clearly we get the answer right here. It's the actual might, you might say it's the entire span of God's gift of showing this eternal kingdom that now every person is invited to become a part of by repenting of our sin and receiving the Lord Jesus and acknowledging the king is alive. But then just one more text to turn to, and this turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, and very quickly, but it's, I think it'd be helpful to see it in our own Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning at verse 1, we find the Apostle Paul here. Now, this is very interesting that Paul is writing the words you're going to find in 1 Corinthians 15, most likely about 23 to 26 years after the resurrection. So, what is very notable in the church, you have basically an entire generation of the new believers that are now uh, time has passed, and we have almost a quarter of a century after the resurrection of Jesus, and this vital truth is at the heart of what was anchoring and grounding 
the believers in an understanding of why we need this eternal life. And we read it in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which you are, and could you say this word with me, saved. Let's say it, by which also you are saved. So this is the saving. This is the, the, the instrument of Almighty God for bringing salvation which means a deliverance of the soul from its captivity to sin and the gift of God in eternal life, full salvation, spirit, soul, and body, including the promise, the hope, the realization of the glorification of the body in that distant future. So this is all a part of what we talked about on Easter, the holistic, the whole man picture of our Lord's resurrection. But it's also notice, notable in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4 that he highlights these appearances that we're now uh, visiting back in the gospel account. And look at verse 4. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, another synonym for Simon Peter, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom, now this is at this writing of Paul, most of whom remain until now. So these are living contemporaries of the apostle explaining to these people in Greece now, in the city of Corinth, that they're alive and they're living witnesses that they saw the Lord. Until now, but then some of them are fallen asleep. So Paul is now describing uh, the, you might say, the uh, cast of witnesses. But I want you to go back to John 21 now and notice that when we find in John 21, the Lord Jesus has appeared to the disciples. The Greek term used in that first verse in John 21 shows us why this wonderful story can be so relevant in the now for anyone who has come into this sanctuary today, anyone that has found yourself suffering from deep wounds, aching hurts, a broken heart. Now first, let's just notice how he manifested himself. The word uh, translated here appeared in the Greek language means and revealing fully what the eye cannot perceive. Now, it, it can be used in just the common street language manner of appearing, but what is really interesting is that this particular word um, comes into focus whenever the gospel writer is explaining the impact of a person coming to discover who Jesus really is. So it is more than just appearing like showing up. It is the revealing of his person. A couple of quick examples help make that clear. One is, the, is the, uh, John the Baptist in the early phase of the gospel account where the Bible is telling us about his preparatory ministry to prepare people to see the Lord, to recognize who the Lord was. That John the Baptist had this distinctive role of being the forerunner, the herald, the announcer, so to speak. 
And he explains using the same word in John's account here that is used in John 21.1. The reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. That is, that they that the disclosure of the real living Son of God. Interesting in our series in March on Open Bible Workshop, one of the things we talked about is the reason for that God breathed in Scripture is that only Almighty God can disclose Himself to us. The distinctive of the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ is that religions of the world and philosophies of the world seek to attain some level of virtue as they define it, or some level of godlikeness, or some level of religious um, attainment, or spiritual nirvana, but they're all based on human aspirations to become like God, or to connect with God, or to define God. The difference from John 1.1 in the full display of God's plan for this good news is that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and in Him is that light of men. So God had to disclose His own identity, and that lux of John 1 literally means the inner display, the revealing of who God is. And now in John chapter 21, he is making his full identity known to the disciples in this appearance. So John the Baptist had the task of being the herald of the one who, apart from him choosing to disclose himself, we would be in the dark. And it's why the Apostle John was able to say that his goal was to decrease as the Lord would increase. Now, if you go back to John 21, then you see that, uh, that John is now recording from his own memory and his own experience in John 21 this remarkable account where seven disciples have stayed around the Sea of Galilee. And it's interesting, it's kind of in between. We saw last week the two appearances in the upper room in Jerusalem where the first time there were 10 of the 11 that were there to see the Lord when he displayed his, the wounds in his side and the, the wounds in his wrist from his crucifixion. And in his glorified visitation with them, he passes through the locked doors and comes among them and then when Thomas hears about it later Thomas is saying I will not believe unless I see and touch and we saw how mercifully and mightily the Lord Jesus dealt with Thomas there in that upper room last week but now it's notable that the 21st chapter opens with Thomas being the one mentioned second only to Simon Peter and there, there seems to be a number of really deft, poignant, really elegant examples throughout the 21st chapter of John of the Holy Spirit's grace in giving us 
such detail that stirs our wonder toward the Lord and has a layers of meaning to remind us that this encounter seeming so simple on the shore of the Sea of Galilee held so many treasures for the hearts of the disciples. And I think one of those is right at that very first verse where we see that it was, or second verse, where that it was Thomas right there with Simon Peter. Here's the guy that we saw last week. The Lord almost used him as an object lesson that, yes, Thomas, I'm going to show you, and yes, Thomas, you can touch, and yes, Thomas, you can have tangible evidence, and yes, Thomas, he never rebuked Thomas for that, but he used Thomas as an example of painting a portrait of something far greater. Yes, Thomas, you have now seen and touched and believed, but oh, how much greater is it for those who have not seen with the natural eye, but now believe. All of that was to accent the magnitude of what it means for you and me today to know the living Savior. And and in this beautiful story that unfolds, I'm reminded of a statement I read not long ago where someone said that history, history turns on tiny hinges. And who would have thought that a campfire breakfast of fish and bread on the shore of the Sea of Galilee early in the morning with seven frustrated fishermen out in a boat that haven't caught anything, and the Lord of glory, but who chooses to be incognito, is on the shore cooking breakfast to welcome to the shore the one who doubted him last time we were together and the one who denied him. And it's that doubting and denying and that, that interplay of these personalities that shows us how the living, resurrected power of Jesus heals the deepest of hurts in every heart. That is, these men were chosen for this very simple-sounding story, and yet so laced with the magnitude of the resurrection life of God that it reminds us He's here, He's alive, He is inviting us out of our failed fishing vessels into his glorious presence. Notice that it's, it's quite interesting that Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. There seems to be a, a playful almost kind of intrigue in this story, where certainly by the time that uh, they began to realize who he was. They were now overwhelmed with the meaning of the miracle. It's, it's not unlike what happened in the second chapter of the Gospel of John when, when uh, a wedding that Jesus appeared at in Cana of Galilee, the host had run out of the wine for the guests and the people in charge went to the mother of Jesus and said, what can you do to help us get this, get some help from him. And though Jesus was not ready to reveal his full glory at the time, he does 
acquiesce, to perform that first sign that's recorded there. And again, the same word is used. The host of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. And John 2.11 goes on to say that he chose this first place to display his glory. So what we find here in John chapter 21 is that Jesus makes himself known to the disciples in a way that strikes their memory in verse 6 of the first time they'd met him. If you have your Bible open in John 21, look first at verse 5, that Jesus said to them, children, some translations say, the the Greek word is lads, young men, uh, almost as if to say, hey guys, I'm right here for you, but did you... Did you have any fish? And, and the, the, the question is kind of asked in such a way as to draw out of them their willingness to admit that, no, life has disappointed us on this occasion. In verse 6, he says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. So they cast it, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of of fish. And then verse 7 of John 21, so moving, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Throughout John's gospel, he refers to him in this rather elliptical way. It's a mark both of John's utter awe for his living Savior and for his humility of mind, and it demonstrates as well the very theme of his entire gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And John continues in his writing to reflect the absolute awe he senses even in remembering those close intimate moments with the Lord that the greatest of all experiences for John was to know that he was deeply loved. For every wounded soul, for every broken heart in this place, for everyone reeling from some deep hurt, no greater gift could come than to be able to identify with those words. In John 21, 7, the disciples Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. (laughs) Oh yeah, surprise, surprise. Where have we heard this instruction before? Throw that net on the other side. And John says, hey, Peter, (laughs) it's the Lord. (laughs) Turn around and tell somebody, the Lord is here. Would you do that right now? The Lord is here. It's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord... He had taken off the, the outer garment as he was, they were working hard, obviously getting uh, the morning sun, getting sweaty, and so he just had on something around his waist. He gets that outer garment and wraps it around him and throws himself into the sea. Here's Simon Peter, the same guy that went running past John to go right into the empty tomb. And now he's jumping into the water when he hears those words, and he knows it in his heart, it's the Lord, even though the Lord has still appeared in a way that is not immediately recognizable, that he, we find that Simon Peter exemplifies that, that wonder and that awe, that, just that beautiful sense of what it means to be with the Lord. And yet, when they all get up on the shore after hauling that uh, great catch of fish in, the Bible adds this note that none of them dared ask him, who are you? (laughs) So there's still this beautiful interplay of the intrigue of the Lord saying, maybe it's a different way of saying, you need to know me more than you even realize. 
And it's true for all of us that yes, we need to know him. Now, of course, there's many reasons why we need to know him, right? But maybe chief among them is a phrase we could identify with in the middle of verse 17. In John 21, 17, there's a telling phrase. It can be translated two ways, and either way strikes all of us at our point of need. Right in the middle of John 21, verse 17, the Bible says that when Jesus had finished the breakfast, that Jesus said to Simon Peter, do you love me? And in verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And right in the middle of that 17th verse, notice this, Peter was hurt. Did you say it aloud with me today? Peter was hurt. Peter was hurt. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Well, this, this hurt, this ache, this grief, this, this pain that struck the heart of Peter is not only something we can identify with because all of us know why. He's the one who not once, not twice, but three times in the night that Jesus was betrayed and put into the hands of the Roman authorities and then in the outer court of the temple palace where people were waiting for the outcome of that trial, Peter and others are around. There are fires keeping people warm, and there's a maiden who asked him, weren't you with the Galilean? And Peter has said, no, no, I, I don't even know the man. And a little later he's asked again, we saw you among those, that group that was following the, the teacher from Galilee. No, no, not me, not me. And it's notable that, uh, the, that the gospel writer that ended up later being closest to Peter, almost like a personal assistant and a, a, a companion and, and somewhat of a, um, a co-laborer in every sense, was John Mark. And in Mark's gospel, Mark adds, because under the tutelage of Peter, he'd learned this detail in more and emphasized it. Peter wanted people to know. In John, in Mark 14, 71, he adds the, the additional detail that the third time Peter broke out in cursing when he was asked, do you know this one from Galilee? Now here we have uh, John 21, 17. Jesus at the third time has said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And the hurt that he exemplifies there is a reminder to all of us that there are various kinds of hurts in our lives. Now, I, I want to toggle for a minute and think of it this way, if we can get in the shoes of Peter, that Peter was being asked, Simon, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than the than the, than the good things of life? Do you love me more than the privileges that come your way? Do you love me more than the, than, than the, the benefit of having this great catch of fish? This was a miracle catch, a mighty miracle, and not only in the way that it happened, but in the, in the impact that it had upon their lives, and yet Jesus is saying, miracles are great, Peter, but something's better than miracles. And that is the living, dynamic, interpersonal relationship you have with Christ. 
It's similar to what Jesus said in Luke 10, 17, when the apostles in groups of two, 35 groups of two, 70 had gone out on a mission and they came back reporting to Jesus that mighty deeds had been done. The power of God would, was in manifestation. Demons had come out of many. Mighty healings had taken place. And then Jesus warned them in Luke chapter 10, don't rejoice because the demons are subject to the authority of my name, but rejoice mostly that your names are written in the lambs in the, in the book, that your names are written in heaven. So here we have a similar fact, that in Jesus' encounter with Peter, he's saying, you've just experienced a mighty miracle. Yes, indeed. But do you love me more than the miracle? And it is in that sense that, that this, this trio of questions that come to Peter are kind of a, a template for us that bring healing Remind us that healing for the worst of all hurts is available in Jesus Christ. But we have to think about those hurts honestly a little bit because, frankly, there are many sources of hurt. If I simply ask you today, how many of you remember, maybe vividly, a time that you got deeply hurt by someone or something? Most of us can easily think about that. And, of course, across the span of possible causes or many things. I'm struck by the fact that self-inflicted hurts are far more common than we may often think. And Simon Peter's experience is that his own actions produced the cause of the deepest pain of his soul. The pain of losing the Lord Jesus in such a violent and brutal and, and bloody way in itself was, was, was horrific and traumatic. But added to that, raising that exponentially to the 10th power was Peter's understanding, not only was Christ taken from us so violently, but I verbally denied him with my own lips, not once, not twice, but three times. How deep the agony of that pain went into Peter's soul. What I hope to show you in this question in Interchange too, is that I believe the very way Jesus addressed it was a perfect template for his bringing the healing of pure and total forgiveness in a way that our hearts know is authentic and real. Peter's mouth had crossed his great pain. It reminds me of the time that this turtle had wanted to go to Florida and persuaded a couple of very ambitious geese to be his aides. So they got this long, strong rope. The turtle persuades the geese to keep the rope between them and to let him vice his teeth onto that rope, and they successfully flight. Two courageous geese and the persuasive turtle. And they're flying along, and they're going over different communities, and all of a sudden they come over this one small town where someone looks up and sees the turtle hanging from the rope between two geese and says, Wow! Who came up with that idea. And the turtle, 
not being able to resist taking credit, said, I did! Peter is like that turtle. He's brought pain on himself with his own mouth. And for all of us, we know, if we're honest, that often those self-inflicted pains are some of the most pronounced. But that's not all. We've also experienced the hurt of being ignored when we feel that we should have been noticed. Maybe we don't admit that as readily, but most people have felt the sting of being ignored or neglected. Being misunderstood is, is a very painful hurt, is it not? Sometimes I can remember a story somebody just shared with me long, not long ago about having an, a, a, a conversation where the other person completely took their words out of context and later reported it in such a way that completely put what they said in, a, in an awful light and was not only embarrassing, but was a painful, more of the painful because they couldn't correct the, uh, the lie that was now spreading freely about them. Have you ever experienced anything kind of like that? The, the hurt or the pain of, of rejection. You poured your soul into a relationship, a, a, an, an experience with people that you had reason to believe would be mutual. You gave above and beyond the call of duty, or you invested heart, wholeheartedly in making other people's lives better, and yet, in some way, cold-hearted rejection slapped you in the face. Betrayal itself is probably of the deepest of the pains that human beings experience. Jesus entered into the full weight of such pain in all aspects of his experience in being the crucified lamb for us, and yet it doesn't change the fact that betrayal will still come. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter himself writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says that the Lord Jesus set this example for us. Now his, his suffering and death on the cross was redemptive and he accomplished all that we ever need in order to experience the gift of salvation. But Peter added to that, not only did he accomplish it all for us, not only did he complete the atonement, but he also, his way of dealing with this was a pattern for us. And so in all of these ways, in all of these experiences, yes, it is true that as Jesus was asking Peter, do you love me? He was zeroing in on Peter's need to be healed of the worst of all possible hurts. What could be worst of all the hurts you and I have ever absorbed? What could be worse than knowing we had personally and repeatedly and publicly and openly denied Jesus and not only did we deny him, but we denied him right in the moment of our Lord's most deep pain. This is the pain, this is the hurt that struck at the heart of Peter. And again, just as the scripture uses Thomas to show us, a more powerful experience of faith is knowing him when you haven't seen him. Now, the scripture uses Peter to show us a more powerful and full healing of the heart through the very tender appeal of Christ to Simon Peter. Well, it's often been pointed out, if you look at, first, at John 21, 15 to 17, this section 
These three questions involve two different words. In our English language, they're translated love, but they come from two different words in the Greek, and many people know that and are familiar with it. But what's, the reason I want to share it today is that I think it's been often really badly misunderstood. In fact, I believe the real conclusion here is the exact opposite of what is often said. Here's what's sometimes said, that uh, Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. Now that's been taken to mean that Jesus was saying, do you really love me with that self-sacrificial love? And Peter's saying, well, I, I love you like a friend. Actually, the more that I have studied this text, I believe it's exactly the opposite. For one thing, the word agape is used in, in, in passages in the Greek that are not always the, that highest level of love. It is one of several synonyms for love. And secondly, Peter's answer to Jesus is striking in its consistency. Peter is actually saying what phileo in the larger sense means is a warm, passionate, affectionate, whole heart, I'm in all the way, that kind of love. And the emphasis of the text is not on the contrast of these words. No, the emphasis of the text is on the tender love of Christ who knows his wounded servant needs to be completely healed of the hurt that is the very worst hurt in his life. And Jesus not only feeds them a delicious breakfast and shows them a mighty miracle in the catching of that great catch of fish, but then after fully reclining and enjoying that breakfast and being back together and all of them looking at each other and saying, why are we here? And none of them asking, who are you? Because they all knew it was the Lord. Then the Bible says that Jesus turns to Simon and says, Simon, do you love me? Now, what a gift he gives Simon in this moment. Nothing could have been more painful than that failure in Simon's life. Nothing could be more painful in your life than some place where you, you tripped, you worse than the turtle who says, I claim the credit. You have somewhere, your mouth has gotten you in trouble. Somewhere your own actions have generated pain, as well as the pain others may have inflicted upon you, consciously or unconsciously. And wherever you are in that, in that spectrum of pain, on a scale of 0 to 10, if you're at a 13 of pain, you've never had worse pain than Peter did of knowing the depth of his denial. Jesus chooses not just a blanket, okay, Peter, I'm glad you're here at breakfast. I'm going to bless you and tell you you're forgiven. He could have done that. But he chose in the wondrous, the wondrous ways of our Lord, he chose to draw Peter out and ask Simon Peter to go ahead and express the love that Jesus knew was really inside of him. He says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Simon Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, I, yes, I love you. And Peter then, Jesus then gives him the command, tend to my lambs. In the first of, in all three questions, he gives him an immediate reminder, not only are you not discarded, not only are you not rejected, not only are you not cast off, Peter, but now in the very uttering of your love, I am sending you with a ministry 
that is filled with the life-giving power of God. He's echoing here on the shore of the Sea of Galilee what he said 80 miles south in Jerusalem in that upper room in John 20 when he told all the disciples, including Simon Peter, even as the Father sent me, so I send you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in this maybe 8, 9, 10, 15, 14 days later, we don't know exactly the time frame here of this visit on the shore of Galilee, but it was within a couple of weeks. He's now bringing Peter out in the beauty of nature in a completely quiet place to an understanding. There was a wound so deep in you that nobody knew Peter but Jesus himself. And not only did Jesus know the wound, he knew how, he knew how to masterfully treat the wound. And the way he treated the wound was saying, Peter, tell me, do you love me? Peter says, I love you. Jesus didn't deny it. He said, tend my lambs. He asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. And then, shepherd my sheep. And then, that 17th verse. We're about to finish. Let's look at that one more time. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you, now do you love me? And here in that third one, he, Jesus switches from agape back to phileo. I believe he's saying, Peter, I'm going to meet you right where you are. Yes, you have said, you, you passionately and affectionately love me and you want to love me more. That phileo love is, is not something Jesus is knocking Though his is the agape, the, the, the more full and more complete and more awesome love that only God can give. But he's literally reaching into Peter's soul and he's saying, Peter, Peter, I receive your love. And I'm giving you this third opportunity to express it and to know that I care. Uh, Jim Kerwin of... Uh, Finest of the Wheat uh, Teaching Fellowship in, uh, uh, in Virginia made this wonderful observation saying exactly what I'm saying now, and I think it summarizes it. Jesus, the great physician, the healer of broken hearts, has just purged Peter's heart of guilt in a way no simple you're forgiven could have done. The Savior in his infinite merciful wisdom has elevated the exercise of forgiveness. Peter's three denials are redeemed by three humble but passionate declarations of undying love. Yes, the Lord sees the worst of hurts in your life, self-inflicted or inflicted by others. But Jesus, our Savior, knows exactly, precisely, how to bring full forgiveness that doesn't just wipe away the past, but heals that agony of pain. Can we close with this, a prayer of response to the Lord? And I'm going to just ask you to pray it with me aloud. It could be applied across a spectrum of things in your life. And it could be something that comes from many sources, but out of your soul to receive the very healing that was modeled with Simon Peter and this simple prayer, in fact, could you stand with me together and, and we'll, we'll share this simple prayer and um, just share it as a way, it could be two ways. One, there could be somebody here listening today who is deeply hurting right now and, may, and maybe there's something that's been surfaced by you hearing of the pain Simon Peter 
endured of his own deep failure, but it could also be a preparation for another time. And in your heart, you could say, let me put this in my heart. Let me, let me as Mary did, ponder this in my heart, that there may be a time you need to just bring such a simple response to the Lord. I'm going to just ask you to read it and pray it aloud with me as the team comes to lead us in worship. Would you pray this with me today? Lord, I bring this hurt to you today. I feast on your forgiveness. I release my offenders. I receive all I need to follow you. I trust, trust totally in your risen life and glory. Receive, receive, receive. Jesus is alive. <laughs>